Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to Extra Time, a web-only sports show from RNZ Sport. I'm Barry Guy. In this week's show, we celebrate the All Blacks World Cup success and the reception they got on their arrival home. A woman jockey won the Melbourne Cup for the first time and managed to make her point that there are still inequalities in the sport. Janine Southby was named as the new Silver Ferns coach and now she'll attempt to overhaul Australia as the best team in the world. And the Wellington Phoenix continue their fight for survival in the A-League. are World Cup winners again and we can reflect on what was really a straightforward campaign for them. No longer are they chokers, they know how to win. The man that guided the team the last four years is Steve Hansen who will remain in the coaching job until the British and Irish Lions tour here in 2017. Hansen spoke to the media the day after the final and was asked if he was now satisfied with his philosophy of selection ahead of the tournament of risk and reward. As a group we... we we discussed all the risks and, and uh, the rewards were were far outweighing them to be really to be risked. You know, they were so obvious that you know we, we've got to do this, otherwise it's not going to work. So um, oh, I guess uh, you know, people were a little bit impatient with us early in the pool rounds, but you know, at the same time we'd learnt some pretty valuable lessons in 07 about. Um, when your pool's not as strong as maybe other pools were, um, that you had to work hard then, and there's no point showing all your cards early. Um, yeah, because there's enough analysis out there now, you know, for people to pick up what you're doing pretty quickly. So we we worked away at things we wanted to work on and and wanted to improve on. So when we got to the big games, we we had them sorted. Did you have, a, have to have a special group of players to pull off, you know, that plan? Oh, look, I think you've got to have a special group of players to win the thing. There's no doubt about that. Like, there's not too many sides that have won it with just ordinary players. Um, so, yeah, chess matches are difficult to win, even when they're not World Cups, and uh, you've got to have the right cattle to be able to do that. So, we're very lucky we've got a special group of people. And Kieran, oh, sorry, Kieran Reid, the way he carried on uh, on one foot last night, is that a good apprenticeship to take over the captaincy next year? Well, I think he's. You know, he's had plenty of time, hasn't he? He's, this is his second World Cup and um, he's had 
a number of test matches as captain and he's been playing with probably the greatest captain we've had and he's great mates with him. They've done a lot of time together in the Crusaders and Canterbury so uh, yeah, his time uh, will come and I'm sure he'll be developed into a great leader too. Steve, is there a sense, you know, this job is so demanding, um, it's a sense of satisfaction that you've got the job done? Yeah, it was different from last time. Last time it was a real sense of relief, you know, because the country needed it and the team needed it. And um, this time it was a little bit different. You know, you could actually come to the tournament and and enjoy the whole thing. And and uh, as a result, um, you know, when, when when we've managed to win it, uh, it's not one of relief. It's just one of satisfaction. As an All Blacks coach, you're expected to win every game. How, how do you deal with that sort of pressure and, um, you know, week in, week out? Oh, the best thing to do is accept it. It's not going to go away. So if you accept it and you understand it, and all it does is drive your own inner motivation to be higher. And so it's one of the things I think that has made the All Blacks what they are. The external pressures um, you know, are really high, so the internal ones have to be even higher. You've got some departing players um, that are pretty special to this team. Can you just talk about Because you've been in there for a long time, like them, mm-hmm. what they've meant to this All Blacks squad. Well, the, bit the, you know, the number one thing you've got to do when you play the All Blacks is, is uh, play well and, and enhance the history that goes with it, the legacy, as we call it. And you know, I think each and every one of those guys that are departing have done that in their own way. Um, you know, you've got the extremes in, in Richie and Dan and Mar and uh, Kevy and Woody and, and uh, Conrad, you know, all of them. Bar Conrad have played 100, over 100 test matches, I think. Mar's, uh, Conrad's about 93. Then you've got other people like Liam and uh, Benny Franks and, and Colin Slade have, who haven't you know, had the same uh, amount of games, but they've done their job too. And, and for a team to, to function and, and be as good as this one has been, everyone has to do their own job no matter how big or how small that job is and, and do it really, really well. So uh, each and every one of them have, have, have done that and therefore they've enhanced the jersey and left it better than they found it. Are you hoping to have the bulk of the coaching staff stay on for at least the next two years? Uh, yeah, it looks like we should have most of them, so <clears throat> we'll finalise that up over December and, and the new year. And um, But the important thing now is we just enjoy this. You know, We've got a bit of time before we have to jump back on the horse and um, you know, only comes around every so often and, and you know, even less uh, winning it so it's important that we all enjoy it. Steve, one of the things that the All Blacks have always managed to do is bring through new talent with so many senior players either going or about to go. Is that the biggest single challenge now? It's going to be one of them um, but you know, we've been working hard on making sure that we're bringing through talent anyway. There's a stack of guys that are on about 30 or 40 test matches you know, that are young. You know, you look at the two uh, locks, for example, Retallick and Whitelock. Both got still a long way to go in their careers, and both of them have got a lot of miles uh, under the bonnet with, you know, with test match appearances. Um, you've got people like Sam Kane, who's going to take over from Richie, who's you know, had a really good grounding, and um, Ben Smith... Aaron Smith, you know, they're close to 50 test matches. So there's plenty of guys there who've been through a lot of the things uh, we've been through in the last four years that, you know, we've talked about self-belief and, you know, there's a lot of that self-belief there. So it's just a matter of continuing 
to grow that and, and uh, foster it and, and, and feed it. You've been up in this part of the world, you know it's the hoary old chestnut. Can you give the Northern Hemisphere any hope, given the domination from your part of the world in the latter stages of this World Cup? Oh, look, I think this World Cup's been, a, you know, uh, an eye-opener for everybody, and I think some teams will go away and say, right, oh, what have we got to do better? And, you know, England um, not making the, the quarter-finals will, will force them to look at themselves. Um, because they're a proud nation and they're a good rugby nation, so uh, I'm sure they'll get stronger. Uh, you know, Wales had a horrific run of injuries and they've got a good squad when everyone's there, so you know, that'll be a great test series for us next year. Uh, France have got a new coach already, so you know, you'll probably see changes. And and I thought uh, Scotland, you know, really performed, and and Ireland uh, uh, again, they'll be disappointed having had such good seasons the last two years. I think they've been the Six Nation champions, so. Now they'll look at themselves and say, well, what are we going to do to be better? And as will we, you know, we'll have to go away and say, right, well, what, when the dust settles and you know, what are we going to do to keep ourselves um, motivated and, and travelling so we can improve? And Because if we don't, you know, people will go past us. And, and what happens for you over the next few months? Are you back into work or you take, take a bit of time? Uh, well, we'll sit back and, you know, just get through the next couple of weeks and take a bit of a breather then we'll come back together as a group in December and and map out uh, some short term stuff about what we're going to do next year and and then it'll be uh, right off into the sunset and have a good break. And, and you just uh, spoke before about um, how sort of taxing this job is expecting to win every game and how you might not be there past 2017 is that just because that constant pressure you've won a World Cup and you know that you, you can't stop now? Uh, look, it's it's just a pressure job. I'm not saying that that's the reason why I'd stop. You know, I think I just think it's a, probably at this point I'm thinking that's probably the right time for the team uh, to someone else to step in and, and take over. So you know, we'll, we'll look at that and see how we're going in 17. But um, I, I just think you can't stay there forever uh, unless you're prepared to to um, sacrifice a, well, a whole lot of uh, family time and at some point you've got to go back and give them the time that they deserve and um, you know, I'm just thinking 17 is probably a good time to do that. Steve Hansen talking to the media the day after their World Cup victory. The All Blacks are now back home enjoying time with their families. The day they arrived home the All Blacks immediately went on parade in Auckland with skipper Richie McCaw telling the crowds there's no better feeling than holding the cup up twice in a row. Thousands turned out early at Auckland Airport, then tens of thousands more around noon at the Central City Victoria Park. Mohammed Hussain was there. Back-to-back World Rugby Champions 2015, the Mighty All Blacks! It was a welcome fit for Kings. Thrones sitting ready on a black stage with a black backdrop, black flags and of course a silver fern. The Black Knights, back from battle, marched through the crowd. The sun gleaming golden off the Webb Alice Cup, home again. Earlier in the day, thousands rose before the break of dawn to make sure they were at the airport the moment the All Blacks touched down. I got up at 3 o'clock, have a shower, and then um, here. Yeah, we had to get up at 5 o'clock uh, this morning, and uh, um, the traffic was good at that hour of the morning. <laughs> <laughs> and I got a flag. And I got my welcome home chance. <laughs> but it didn't end there. 
With an escort from their hotel rooms, the team moved past eager fans, paving a trail through the city to the edge of the field at Victoria Park. A thunderous welcome awaited. And with it, thousands of hands to shake and hundreds of rugby balls, t-shirts, handkerchiefs and random items to autograph to be cherished forever. So who did you get? You've got a couple of people here. <laughs> you got Dan Carter? Oh, you must be pretty excited about that. Yes. Who else? There's a couple of people. <laughs> you don't know their names? <laughs> like many others bright-eyed in the crowd, Asher and Levi came decked out in the jerseys they one day hoped to fill. Who are you excited to see, Asher? Dan Carter. Dan Carter? Did you get to see him? Yeah. What's your name? Levi. Levi, I see you're wearing your All Blacks jersey and everything. You look pretty proud. Are you proud of the boys? Yes. Yeah? Who was your favorite player? Nahim Yoruskara. The All Blacks winger can relate. As a, as a little fella, you always grow up wanting to, um, I guess you watch the All Blacks on TV and you always aspire and it's a dream to, to play for them. And uh, for me to do that this year and to play the World Cup has been, it's been huge, bro, yeah. There was one other person on everyone's lips. And you were here to see Sunny in Yes, yes. Why is that? Why him? Oh, he's fabulous. He's just a superstar and he's an admirable guy. Yeah? Yeah. And we love him. Some drove from as far as Rotorua to get here. Others arrived just early enough to get to the front of the crowd. My name's Penny Fox and this is my son Miller Fox. You can say your name, Miller? Miller. A journey well worth it, ending with a firm handshake from one Richie McCaw. How did it feel meeting Richie? Super cool. <laughs> Speaking of which... There's no better feeling than being able to hold that cup up again and uh, to do it uh, two times in a row. I know we've probably annoyed a lot of other rugby teams around the world in the last uh, four years, but uh, getting home this morning has certainly made all that hard work uh, worthwhile. As the champions left the stage and boarded their buses, those who hadn't quite had enough clambered around the fences, screaming, whistling to say goodbye to their idols. A retiree, Dave Jameson, got to do just that. Oh, well, Steve Henson waved at me. Oh, did he? From the bus. I wasn't going to say that. Yeah, he looked at me, waved at me. Oh, brilliant. How do you feel about that? Oh, it's good. Yeah, it's good. Oh, I think they do a great thing for New Zealand. They're great representatives. And they took on the best in the world. Mohammed Hussain with that report. This is Extra Time with Barry Guy. The Southern Steel's Janine Southby has become the new coach of the Silver Ferns. She's the team's 10th coach in their 77-year history, and Southby will be at the helm for the next four years. This will include the Gold Coast Commonwealth Games in 2018 and the World Cup in Liverpool in 2019. Southby has been head coach at the Steel since 2013, and she was assistant coach of the New Zealand A side for its recent trip to Sydney. She also coached the Fast Five Ferns in 2013 and 14, winning the title in both years. Matt Chatterton spoke to her just after her appointment was announced and asked her if there will be anything new she'll bring to the role. I think that as a coach I get the best out of people. I like to get to know them as people and that's a huge part of who I am as a coach and I am a believer of best people equals best players so you know, that's certainly something that I know I bring into an environment. I like to think that I'm pretty adaptable and, and creative as well and I, you know, I'm hugely respectful of the work that Y has done, particularly over the last 
uh, in the last year. I think she's been incredibly brave as a coach and she's forged a new direction for the Ferns so I'm looking forward to being able to keep that going and make some tweaks here and there with the, with the way, the style of play. Yeah, I see, uh, you know, why has sort of changed the lineup recently in particular with the Constellation Cup and the uh, World Cup. She had a bit of a regeneration, I suppose, of the new players coming through. Are you happy with the direction that the team is currently heading in or was heading in with why up until now? Yeah, look, I think, in, you know, the results and particularly the performance on Saturday uh, Friday night in Perth was outstanding and it, you know, a culmination of a lot of things but I think that the most exciting part was they played the style of game for 60 minutes that they've been talking about for the last six or seven months and that, you know, I, I think why well, has to take a lot of credit for that and I'm, I'm just excited about the opportunity that that presents for me. Um, I suppose also you've had quite a few young players in the Southern Steel and there are obviously a number of new players as well in the Silver Ferns, so we'd be hoping to keep that sort of young generation coming through? Yeah, and, and look, I think you've got to respect that there are some very experienced players in the group that um, I'm hoping will want to go forward and obviously some conversations to be ha held in the next couple of weeks but, you know, it's exciting the young players coming through but they've got to earn their spot and, you know, they've really got to push other people out. Are there any changes you want to sort of make immediately or have you sort of held off maybe a few months until you start making drastic changes? Yeah, look, not, not initially. I think it's about just getting myself um, and my head in the right space and getting to know the people and the, and the culture and, and that's a big part of transitioning into a new role. And the panel for selecting the coach, what were some of the, um, some of the words they gave to you about what they sort of hope you bring to the team? I haven't had a heap of feedback, but I think just... You know, the, the work ethic that I bring and the determination that I've had in my pathway to get to this role, uh, professionalism has been certainly a big thing and, and just the way that I, you know, operate myself within the, on and off the court and, and with the players. And uh, just on the um, selection process itself, obviously there's a little bit of you know concern that maybe Julie might have got the job and it might have been an Australian uh, coaching the New Zealand team. Is it quite uh, nice to know, I suppose, for, your, for yourself that it's going to be a New Zealander that's at the charge of the New Zealand team? Yeah, look, you know, I think they chose the best person for the role and, and I can't make comment on anyone else that applied for the role. Yeah, fair enough. Uh, just quickly, also, um, I see, you know, despite the two wins, uh, recent wins in the Constellation Cup, Australia still do have quite, uh, had quite an advantage over New Zealand for the past few years. How do you hope to turn that around? I think a lot of it is about belief and players having that real belief in themselves and each other and that trust that they've all done the hard work to get there. And, and I think that's a huge growth in the ferns that I've seen over the last six or seven months. So, you know, I look forward to that going forward. I think some of it is just that for some of them an understanding of what it actually takes to compete and win at this level and making sure that you're doing the work behind the scenes to be able to do that. Four years uh, is the contract. What, I suppose for you personally, do you hope to get out of this time with, uh, with New Zealand's best team? Win. Win what in particular, I guess? Look, you know, obviously there's some long-term goals around Commonwealth Games and World Cup. Uh, it's about, for me, also developing a um, succession plan through not just at the Silverfin level but through the national squads and in really developing strong connections with the franchises. The Silverfin's new coach Janine Southby talking to Matt Chatterton. History was made in the running of Tuesday's Melbourne Cup with the Ballarat jockey Michelle Payne becoming the first woman to ride the winner at the Cup. Payne stormed home on Prince of Penzance 
The local TAB had the horse at $101 fixed odds, making it the fourth horse in history to win the race at a $101 chance. On trackside, Payne thanked her horse's trainer for giving her a shot in what she says is a man's world. Darren Weir's given me a go when it's such a chauvinistic sport. I know some of the owners were keen to kick me off, for instance. John Richards and Darren stuck really solid with me. I put in all the effort I could. I galloped him every gallop he had and did everything I could to stay on him because I thought he had what it took takes to run a race in the Melbourne Cup. And um, I just can't say how grateful I am to them and just want to say to everyone else can get stuff because they think women aren't strong enough that we just beat the world. The New Zealand jockey Marie Linden, who is now Marie Davey, was the first woman to ride in the Melbourne Cup in 1987. Susie Ferguson asked her about Payne's victory. Terrific ride and a superb outcome for female riders globally, I would say. When you were watching yesterday, did you know there was a female jockey lining up this year? Oh, definitely, definitely. And I actually gave it a better chance of what its uh, odds were suggesting too. Did you back it? No, I didn't. <laughs> Wish you did now. <laughs> uh, when you actually saw that there was a female jockey in the running, does that give a certain sense of, I don't know, hope as you're watching it that maybe they will win? And, of course, this year she did. Uh, well, Australia's owners and trainers are still lagging behind New Zealand in terms of you know putting female riders on their best horses in the stable. So with that in mind, it's always going to be hard to um, for a female jockey to compete on an even level with the guys. But, you know, the measure of a good rider is not on how hard you can hit them, but kind hands and the ability to get the best out of the horse. And I think that's what we saw yesterday with Michelle winning. And so however tough it might be to get a ride, and particularly to get a horse in the Melbourne Cup, that in itself, I suppose, is the thing that that perhaps can set you apart in the first place? Well, definitely. With all these European horses coming um, down to Australia now for the, the Melbourne Cup, you know, 6.2 million Australian prize money, it's nothing to be sneezed about. It's going to be pretty hard for, you know, any good rider to get a ride in the race. Um, I counted out of 24 runners, seven international riders, uh, not counting four Australian riders that are based in Hong Kong at the moment that only leaves 12 rides for everybody else so it's going to be very difficult in the future for females and Kiwi jockeys to get a good chance to ride in the the Melbourne Cup. Do you still feel, do you still remember that pressure and did people tell you that you couldn't do it? Definitely, um, yeah, people didn't think females could do it way back in 1987 so that's 28 years ago. It's a long time between the first female to ride and the first win. But um, the noise and the hype of the big moment um, of the Cup is very overwhelming, uh, especially for a lot of the horses. And your chances can be lost before you even get to the barrier. And that was the case you know, with me. Uh, I drew 23 at the barrier and pretty much my chances were gone before the horses jumped. Now this horse was number one. That's not traditionally a particularly good starting place for the Melbourne Cup, but well, it clearly worked yesterday. Um, I think it is actually. Any inside barrier over two miles is the best best barrier because you don't want to be covering uh, any ground, any extra ground than you need to be. So, you know, for the likes of Michelle, she covered the true two miles. Um, you know, the other horses that were behind her were one off the fence, two off the fence. They covered a bit more extra ground. 
I think it was just an absolute brilliant ride from her. Um, and yeah, like I said before, superb outcome for female riders globally. Just very, very briefly, is it still a chauvinistic sport? Definitely in Australia. Um, New Zealand, not so. Uh, and I don't know how it will change, you know, with the Aussie owners and trainers not putting on the females on their best chances. Um, I watched Cathy O'Hara ride a winner in Sydney yesterday on Sheila Rise. It paid $31. She outrode the male rider, international rider too. Um, I don't know why she's not riding for a big stable in Sydney. Marie Davey, who was the first woman to ride in the Melbourne Cup. This is Extra Time with Barry Guy. The company responsible for running Eagle Eye, the key tracking device component of Cricket's decision review system, this week gave the pink ball its tick of approval. Until recently, Dunedin-based Animation Research conceded it was having trouble tracking the controversial ball when testing it locally. But after testing the program in Adelaide, where the landmark day-night test between New Zealand and Australia match will be played, those fears were eased, says company head Ian Taylor. Our major concern first up was that you know it wasn't, it's not simply a matter of changing colour of balls and then expecting them to be able to be tracked to the level that's required for DRS. You know, we have an algorithm for a red ball, another one for a white. And we did some basic testing down here under lights and none of it looked very good. It, <laughs> it didn't look very promising at all. So um, Channel 9 had organised for us to go up to Adelaide last week and they have a special drop-in pitch which um, doesn't wear the ball as badly as, as the areas where we were trying it and it was really encouraging. The ball held its colour very well. So the issue testing in Dunedin was uh, the, the fact the ball was struggling to hold its, hold its colour. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we, and that was the issue. I mean, I don't know if you saw, there were some photos online of, of the pink ball um, after 20 or 30 overs at a Sheffield match somewhere somewhere else where people were complaining and it really did look awful I mean there was no way we could attract that um, but again it was the same thing it was the quality of the pitch and um, and you know we were under the correct conditions at Adelaide we had the, the, the lights that they're using the pitch that they're using it's a drop-in pitch and um, the results were you know very encouraging. Was it at the 80 80- over mark that ball too because obviously that's sort of when things get get changed in, in test cricket yeah yeah at, at 80 overs it was still pink the interesting thing was um that during the daylight the pink ball is easier to track than either of the other balls it was fantastic to track the problems we were having was as it wore and changed color and then came under lights um quite often we couldn't see it but that didn't happen on the four nights we were we were tracking in adelaide it, it tracked um as well as we would expect. So when it, if, if or should there be pink ball test matches in New Zealand, there would obviously have to be some adjustment for the, for the pitches. Yeah, and I think everybody understands that. But one of the other things we're doing, and, and there just wasn't time um, because this came up quite quickly, um, we are working on different technologies um, to apply to, to tracking. That will mean it won't matter what colour the ball is. What happens, though, if for some reason the ball does lose colour and you have trouble tracking it part way through the test match well that's that's a that's a risk we face all the time um you know even with the red ball and red and white balls it, there's a risk there are certain times of the day where you know being able to track it the lighting starts to to affect you know we're always adjusting exposures we're always adjusting camera head speeds and things like that um and there is the ability which i think we've probably used twice or three times in the entire time where we 
notify the third umpire that we don't believe we've got enough data to track it. So he uses the, all the other technologies but then doesn't use the, the tracking data that we have. And I think we've done that three times in, in the whole history of the time. So that that is an op, 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 option that remains in place and is part of the official umpiring process. If we don't think we have the right amount of data and we're not confident, we can actually just tell the third umpire, you have to do this without us. Animation research head Ian Taylor. The Wellington Phoenix Football Club are pleading with fans to come to their next home game against Adelaide United next week in an attempt to show Football Federation Australia that they're worthy of a spot in the A-League. Last week, the FFA declined the Phoenix's proposal for a 10-year extension on their A-League licence, instead offering them a four-year extension, which the Phoenix's owners have yet to respond to. The FFA pointed to the Phoenix's poor crowd numbers, which averaged around 8,500 last year, as one of the reasons behind the decision. The Phoenix are hopeful of getting at least 10,000 people to the game at Wellington Stadium on November 13th. Matt Chatterton spoke to the club's chief executive, David Dome. We've um, obviously had these uh, ongoing negotiations with the FFA and they have come out publicly and, and publicly stated that they want to see the metrics, <laughs> whatever that's worth, uh, out of New Zealand get better. Um, and this is what we're saying is, is, you know, here is a chance now for this game on the 13th at Westpac, uh, 13th November, Friday the 13th November. You know, uh, it's a bit of a test for us um, to, to, to see if the if the city will get out. Now, the... The, the support that we've had from behind the club, getting behind the club over the last week or so, has been magnificent. And uh, fans from all around Australia and New Zealand and around the world have jumped on board to save the next campaign and also contributed to Yellow Feet with Give a Little uh, give a little Pay. So it's been really, really heartwarming. And the, the next big hurdle for us is whether um, people actually turn out to the game on uh, on Friday the 13th. And, I mean, I will ask, is, is just getting these numbers, is, is that really going to, you think, help the scenario with the FA? It's all part of the jigsaw, isn't it? So it's, no, it's certainly not going to hurt, put it that way. If we have a strong turnout on that day and then on our subsequent games, then it will start sending a message that, yes, uh, there, is, there is work to be done in, in New Zealand to get these numbers up. But, you know, there is a willingness of, for, the, uh, for the fans in Wellington and around the country to support the to, to support the Phoenix. You know, it, it, the worst case scenario is you get a big crowd and and they go, well, that's only one game. But your worst case scenario on top of that is that you know we get a really poor crowd and then the owners start questioning, Jesus, there any future? If really, you know, at such a crisis point, as nobody was going to turn out for the game. So, you know, there is there is certainly um, a lot on the game and and. You know, like I say, the fan support's been magnificent, and now we're just um, we're asking that uh, people translate that to bums on seats on the 13th. Do you buy into this from the FA that you know it is all about the number, crowd numbers, and that that is a major concern? I mean, obviously, you know, sometimes when you do look at the stadium, I'll be honest, I've noticed the stadium can sometimes look quite empty when a game is on. Is is that the main issue here for you? I don't think it's the main issue. I think it's one of the issues that the FFA have highlighted. Some of them that we can't affect, that um, the Phoenix as a club can't influence. Um, so this is one that we can influence, and this is the one we're, we're asking people to help us with. Is it any way, I mean, a sign from you guys that you're thinking we, are, you know, we think this could be the end? This is an attempt to try and really turn it around. Um, well, it, it's you know we're still very hopeful that that the, um, the licence will be extended and that the Phoenix will be an ongoing part of the sporting landscape in this country for, for some time. But we have to start somewhere, and this is it. This is the next home game after um, after these um, 
metric issues were raised by SSA about a week and a half ago. This is the first home game that we've got to that we've got to prove that you know there is a support base in the city that that is good enough to meet some of the metrics of the other of the other metros in the A League. And this is what we're asking is people to to, to take up to take note and, and go. Yep, look, I want the Phoenix to be here now and in the future for you know the young footballers coming through and, and to be part of that. I know, uh, obviously, there are a number of uh, sort of privacy matters around the constant ongoing negotiations with the FFA. But is is the communication still at a, at a positive from your perspective? Do you consider it positive the talks you've had with the FFA? Yeah, well, they're on at the moment now. There's a lot of work going on in the background, which is which is proving fruitful with a number of third parties in New Zealand, and there's a lot of people coming to the table. And you've seen some of that in the release we put out there, Westpac Stadium. Um, Wellington City Council, our own partners, Huawei and Carlsberg, uh, Rivera and Apollo have all said, including ADAS, all said they want to get in behind the club and support the club. So everyone's pulling in the right direction. There's still you know, I's to dot and, and T's to cross. But the, like I say, the response from, from fans around the world and response from partners and third parties within uh, within New Zealand has been very encouraging to date, which, which gives us a lot of confidence that there is, there is still things to bring to the table with the FFA. The Phoenix Chief Executive, David Dome, talking to Matt Chatterton. That's extra time for this week. You can follow RNZ Sport on Twitter at RNZ Sport or email to sport at radionz.co.nz. Bye for now. Tired of ads barging into your favourite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.